Please rise for the reading of God's Word. Today we'll be reading from Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. Hear now God's Word. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as the fire burns brushwood, as the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has I seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you, and you are potter, and all we are the work of your hands. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are all your people. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I worked on these texts for the first Sunday of Advent, I read the preface to a section of one of Jonathan Gibson's books, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, A Liturgy for Daily Worship from Advent to Epiphany. I've been mentioning that in some emails, and I know some of you may have obtained a copy of that. Marinelle and I are are beginning to work our way through that. But the uh, preface to to section one fits so well with the text that I decided, I've decided to read a good portion of that to you this morning to set the table for this sermon. And so, here it is. As early as Eden, God's people have been awaiting people. Following the fall of our first parents, God made a promise that permanently oriented his people toward the future. God told the serpent directly, and the guilty pair indirectly, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It was, in short, the promise of a coming, conquering son. The promise encapsulates every promise in the Old Testament and, as such, shaped God's people into a waiting people. This anticipatory posture can be seen throughout the Old Testament as men and women of faith look forward to what God would do in the future through a promised son. Lamech names his son Noah in the hope that he will rescue the chosen line from the curse of sin and death, Genesis 5:29. Yet it is 600 years before Noah enters the ark at the time of the flood. God promises Abraham that he will make him into a great nation through a son from his own body. But he has to wait 25 years for the birth of Isaac. 
Isaac, in turn, has to wait 20 years for the birth of Esau and Jacob, his twin boys. Jacob works for seven years to get his wife, Rachel, but in the end is deceived into marrying Leah, from whom he receives Judah, the son of the promised line. Naomi has to wait to see if her line will continue following the death of her husband and two sons, even when her daughter-in-law, Ruth, faithfully follows her back to the promised land and pursues Boaz at the threshing floor, they both have to wait to see whether Boaz will be the kinsman to redeem Ruth. Their godly patience allows Boaz to negotiate his way into marriage with Ruth, from whom comes Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. It is only in Naomi's old age that her life is restored. Hannah has to endure years of barrenness like the matriarchs preceding her before the Lord opens her womb and gives her a son called Samuel, the one who would anoint David as God's chosen king. However, David's ascension to the throne does not come immediately. While he is anointed in his youth, he has to go through several years of humiliation and suffering before his ascension to the throne at 30 years old. And God's subsequent promise to David that his son will sit on the throne forever is not ultimately fulfilled until the coming of his great son, Jesus Christ, some 1,000 years later. Indeed, adding up, all, adding up the ages in the biblical genealogies reveals that God's promise in Eden in, uh, of a coming, conquering son takes about 4,000 years to become a reality. Waiting. From the beginning of history, God calls his people to be a people waiting for the coming of his promised son. New Testament writers capture the relief at Jesus' arrival after the uh, prolonged wait. Luke, the evangelist, declares or describes Simeon as a righteous and devout man who has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Taking Jesus in his arms, Simeon utters words that would become an integral part of Christian liturgy from the early centuries of the first of the of the church, the Nuc Dimittis. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory. To your people, Israel. The prophetess Anna has a similar experience on the same day as she gazes upon the baby Jesus. Unable to contain her excitement, she speaks about Christ, quote, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The same is true at the end of Christ's life as well as the beginning. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the Jerusalem Council, is described as one who is waiting for the kingdom of God. In the events bookending Christ's life, there is a remnant in Israel waiting for the day of salvation, waiting for the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul described it as the end of the ages, dawning. It is a long, long wait, but it is not a minute too late. As Paul explains, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Although the longings, hopes, and expectations of the coming 
conquering son are met in Jesus' first coming, it does not change the reality that God's people are awaiting people. Following Jesus' ascension to his Father's right hand, the New Testament believers are still called to adopt the same anticipatory posture. In his farewell discourse, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going away to prepare a place for them, but that he will come again to bring them to that heavenly home prepared for them. He promises, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus also speaks about about it in the parables in Luke 12. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. The angels reiterate this truth to the apostles as they gaze upward to the sky following Jesus' departure. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This coming again shapes the posture of God's New Testament church into an anticipatory people, just like his people of the Old Testament. The apostles reveal the same mindset when they write plainly of waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, for the hope of righteousness, Galatians 5, for God's Son from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 1, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, Titus 2, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, Jude 21. Indeed, the Apostle John closes the Christian canon with words that remind us of Jesus' promise and our longing. Surely I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In both dispensations of redemptive history, the people of God are defined by waiting. In the Old Testament, believers wait for Jesus' first coming. In the New Testament, believers wait for his second coming. In both cases, God's people live in the light of Christ's advent. Now to our text. A prayer begins in Isaiah 63:15 and it continues into chapter 64. This is an advent prayer as it expresses a sense of need for redemption, a savior, a feeling of unworthiness before God, a longing for God to intervene and to act, an assurance that God as father is the very redeemer that we need and it calls for God to come. This prayer is being offered at a time when it seems that the Lord has withdrawn himself from men. We feel that way sometimes. In fact, it felt like there was an impenetrable curtain that had come across the heavens wherein he had hidden himself from his children. This prayer cries out to God to tear open the curtain. Oh, that you would rend the heavens that you would come down. In fact, God's people want to see an earthquake. They want to see some fire. As Hebrews 12:29 reveals, our God is a consuming fire, and I think many of us can relate to this as we look at our own culture and world around us. We want to see some action. 
And so we pray to God to make his name known to his adversaries that the nations may tremble at his presence. We remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifices and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. That boiling water Isaiah 64 is talking about. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. We remember, as did those in Isaiah's day, how many times Yahweh performed dramatic and surprising things. There's no absence of his presence, no absence of his evidence of his acting in history. Verse 3 recalls, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. This is a poetic image of a massive mountain swaying in the presence of Almighty God. And we want to see that now. Verses, verse 4 and the first part of verse 5 says, For since the beginning of the world men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. So God is perfectly able at any time to intervene on behalf of his people. Let's not pass over that lightly. He is perfectly able to intervene at any time. We see all these forces around us. We see what appears to be the prosperity of this person or that group or all kinds of things. And just like in the the hymn, A Mighty Fortress speaks of Satan himself, one little word shall fell him. All God has to do is speak the word, and their foot slides. And it's all over. He recalls them, and they appear before him instantly. He has the whole world in his hand all the time. God has been performing awesome deeds on behalf of Israel for quite some time. The plagues on Egypt that forced Pharaoh to let Israel go. The deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea. The manna in the wilderness. The flattened walls at Jericho. And David's victory over Goliath. Those are all examples of God's intervention. However, this text presents a caveat that we don't find in the other examples of divine intervention In this verse, there's the qualifier placed on God's involvement. It says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has I seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. 
In other words, God moves on behalf of those who wait for him to move. This is an act of faith. It is an act of submission. I want him to act now, but he's not ready to act, but I'm still going to wait for him. I'm not going to lose faith. I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going to become depressed. I'm not going to become fretful. Why? Because God is still on his throne. He's still in charge. He still has the whole world in his hands. And he will act when he's good and ready. Over and over in the scripture, God's people are admonished to wait. Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 37, 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. So the Lord is worth waiting for. No matter how long it takes, no matter what you go through, when you get to that place that God purposed, that he planned, and he provided, you will gladly report that it was worth the wait. Joseph went through some stuff. That's an understatement. He did a lot of waiting. He did a lot of waiting in prison, you remember. He did a lot of waiting down in the bottom of a well. He did a lot of waiting when he was forgotten in that prison. But over and over, the story reveals the Lord was with him. And of course, Joseph doesn't know how the story ends, especially when he's waiting. But at the end of the story, we see what sustained him during those waiting periods. Joseph said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, Do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. I'm where God put me. But as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about it as it is this day. To save many people alive. In other words, God was at work all along doing what he does. Joseph was waiting. Unlike us, God always does what he says he'll do. His compassions fail not. He never abandons his righteous people. So the prayer continues in the last part of verse 5. You are indeed angry. For we have sinned, in these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. And so while God is being asked to act, to reveal himself, nevertheless his people now also recognize and confess that they themselves have not only sinned, but have continued to sin, and that they need to be saved from their sins. Not just their enemies, it's not just the nations, it's us. Confession of our own sins is always the best place to start if we want to see God act on our behalf. And so as they recall how God acted for them in the past, they realize their own role in their own trouble and we, because we tend to treat our own sins lightly. It's not just that they sinned occasionally, but they sin continually, habitually, and deeply, as we do. And in case we missed the point, there's a rather graphic 
verse here, in the first part of verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The scriptures here give us this graphic description of what our self-righteousness and what our self-righteous deeds are like. This is our good stuff. It compares them to a woman's menstrual cloth. That's your good stuff. No one wants to think of their sins that way. But Advent is a time to take stock of who we are and why we need a Savior. Indeed, we cannot pray this Advent prayer from the heart until we see our sins the way they did. He goes on to say, We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. This second picture is that of a leaf falling from its tree. We see this all around us right now in our drive to church today. And it should be a graphic reminder of how sin cuts us off from God who is our source of life. Verse 7a, and there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. That's the problem with our country. That's the problem with our lives where where there's a mess. In fact, they had come to the place where they felt so estranged from an angry God that they even stopped praying. But Advent is a time to take stock of our sins and to face our righteous God. Paul addresses this in Romans 3 when he says, what then? Remember, he had already spoken to the Jews the covenant people of God, and then he spoke about the Gentiles. He says, in fact, they had come to a place where they felt, uh, excuse me, Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all. For we had previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They all have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, they have practiced, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known There is no fear of God before their eyes. The prayer of Isaiah 64 continues in verse 7, the last part, For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Again, there's both a personal uh, interpretation and application here and also a broader social or national application. I suspect that the weight had far less to do with God remembering than it did with the people remembering. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis described the situation when he had lost his wife and was feeling grief. He said, but to go to God when when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. 
He seems so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in a time of trouble. He would go on to realize in a few weeks or months that he was the one who had closed the door. He was the problem, not God. Verse 8 continues, but, there's my word, my favorite word in the Bible, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are potter, and all we are the work of your hands. Despite our sin, and in spite of your anger, you are still our Father. You are our Father, and you have created, created us. We are, again, the works of your hand. And so, on the basis of that, verse 9 pleads, Do not be furious, O Lord. Do not remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We are all your people. So, I want to wrap this up and make some application here to Advent. With that word, wait, we enter the dominant mood of Advent. This is a time of waiting, not for the holiday fun to begin, but for the coming of God into our lonely exile here. The heart of this prayer is that you would rend the heavens, tear open the heavens, and come down. Come down and shake up things, O Lord. Isaiah prays for an epiphany, for an appearance that will shake the nations of the world, the very enemies who have wreaked havoc on God's people. God had done such awesome things that the nations in Israel trembled before him. So in Isaiah, they're asking him to do it again. They want an encore. To tear open the clouds, come down in power and majesty, demonstrate his righteousness, his justice, his grace, his mercy. Of course, God did come down. He came down in Christ. He came down in the incarnation himself. Think about Luke 2. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You talk about rending the heavens. Busting in to human history. God came down and, a mount, and the mountain shook. Matthew 27, then behold, this is at the crucifixion. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. You think that got anybody's attention? Matthew 27, 51 through 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding the tomb of Jesus 
saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew 28, 1-6, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Remember the prayer? We want you to come down and shake the mountains. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As a result, God's anger has now been propitiated. Our sins have been expiated. Our punishment has been taken away. And God's silence has been broken. He came again in 70 A.D., Matthew 24, 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will come again. John 14, 1 through 4, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And since we know these things, we can celebrate Advent with great patience. Or at least we should be able to wait patiently for God to come again in the second advent. But the times in which we live make us impatient and faithless. We fret. We worry. We're anxious about all kinds of things. So this text in Isaiah is a much-needed reminder that God came in Christ and will come again. This is nothing new. So we must wait patiently. We must, in the meantime, repent deeply and come to God honestly, recall his awesome deeds, and pray fervently. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who wait in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are often impatient. We're impatient in the moments of our our lives, at our inconveniences and difficulties and trials. We are impatient with the things we see around us in the world. We are impatient because we are often faithless. Our sins have often beclouded us, and we have forgotten that you cannot lie. You are faithful to your word. You always do what you say. You have come down many times in dramatic ways, and yet we forget. 
we return to our sins and we lose faith again. And so we, Lord, long to see more and more of you. And we do pray that you will come and that you will demonstrate your power and that many will see and believe. Help us, Lord, to repent, to to cry out to you, to trust you, to walk with you, and to rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we have seen how God calls on his people to wait on him. His timing is not our timing. His plan is not our plan. But his timing and his plan are perfect. Even when we are impatient to see him act, he is acting. Paul wrote in Romans 5, 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Perhaps he's wanting us to come to see our weakness first. Perhaps he delays because he is patient with us. Two Sundays ago, I preached from Titus 2 where we read about two major epiphanies, two appearances of Christ, the advents, if you will. I want to read that text again from chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That was the incarnation, the birth of Christ. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's what the coming of Jesus should have taught us. Why? Because now we're looking for, that is waiting for, the blessed hope and glorious second appearing, second advent of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You are special people. The Son of God came revealed himself, and died for you. You're special. Now, we come to remember that at this table. God has revealed himself over and over and over and over and over. His his spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're sons of God. And yet we forget, just like Israel forgot, and we get impatient, and we lose faith. So we come back here to start another week to ask him to help us, to strengthen us, that we would show forth his grace in how we live with one another, how we love one another, forgive one another, overlook. How much does God overlook in you? Man, I can't even imagine how much he overlooks in me. It's embarrassing. How could I not overlook your sins and extend grace, kindness, Mercy, charity, giving you the best possible interpretation of motives and behavior. And even when you misbehave, to forgive. Love covers a multitude of sins. The love of Jesus covers our sins. And he gave us the ultimate love. Herein is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And how do we know he loved us? 
He gave himself for us. He laid down his life for us. And we're to do the same for one another. Amen. Father, we do rejoice at new beginnings for every Lord's Day, for a new year, for every opportunity you set before us, every heartbeat, every moment of life that you give us to represent Christ. Help us, Lord, as we go forth to be your body in this world, to show the world the love of Jesus. Help us in our families, in all of our relationships, that they might be lovely and that they might adorn the gospel. Lord, go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.